Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. This morning's scripture reading before the lesson will come from Psalms chapter 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Please be seated. A few months ago, Paul got with me and asked me if I would be willing to come and speak this morning and talk a little bit on behalf of our college group. Um, I have. We've tried to do this every so often just to give our our church family here an idea of of this work. Um, I've worked with the college group now since... 2018, I had to ask somebody because all those years kind of start to run together. Since 2018, I've, I've kind of overseen this work a little bit. And of course, there's an ebb and flow to the work. You have students who come and go, and we have some students that, that move in. Uh, many of them go to UAH or Calhoun. Some are commuters. UAH is very much a, co- a commuter campus a little bit. So there's an ebb and flow to that work, but it's, it's rewarding without question. For myself, I know for, for Lindsay, my wife, We've made countless relationships in those past six or so years. Um, we've attended weddings. We've seen new, new married couples bring, bring young children into the world. I've officiated a wedding. Lord willing, I'm going to officiate another one in February for some of our, our college students, former college students. Um, of course, we are happy to see that some move here to West Huntsville and worship with us throughout their college years, and then they stay. They get a job. Luckily, UAH is very much an engineering school, and as you know, we have many of those here in our presence. So I usually try to really encourage them to see if they can't find a job here, and so they can continue to worship with us. And, and many of them have, and it's been, it's been wonderful to see that not just are they here in college, but they continue to be a part of this family at West Huntsville. The works that we do, when I kind of took over the college work, I didn't necessarily want to make it youth group 2.0, so to speak. They're a little bit older and, and, and have a little bit different schedules. And so we have our college retreat, which, by the way, is coming up in, in a couple of weeks in November that we do every year. We have some devotional things that we do. The students themselves, and I'll say this, and I said it the last time that I stood in front of you and spoke about our college, uh, the students themselves <coughs> are impressive with the work that they do. Uh, I know on UAH's campus they have SOS, which is Students of Scripture is what that stands for. And it's on UAH's campus, but it's kind of an invite to, to anyone. I know we've had students that are at Calhoun or, or Athens State, and they're welcome to attend this as well, where they meet on Thursday nights. And, and oftentimes they have a devotional. Sometimes they'll just have singing. Sometimes they'll get together and just fellowship and play games and, and um, enjoy each other's company. Another night of the week, Tuesday night, if I remember correctly, 
You'll have the boys and the girls, and they separate, and they have an independent boys' Bible study and an independent girls' Bible study, in which, of course, they're talking about specific topics that have to deal with, with the two sexes. And so the students themselves do a lot, and they lead in this capacity. And it's, it's an impressive, I know, for me to see. It's encouraging and edifying for me to see. It's something that I have no doubt that when I was in college and I was active and I was part of a student center when I was at UNA, I, I wasn't leading near in the way that they are and that I see them doing so. And so that's, it's encouraging, and I know, I know I'm certainly proud of them. And as those that worship here, I, n- I know you would be as well. A quarter or so ago, last quarter maybe, but it may have been two ago, we had a class in the, in the college classroom on Sunday mornings <clears throat> that I taught, and, and Hunter Stevens helped me do this a time or two as well, called Crucial Conversations. And the, the, the title of this I had gotten from a, a book that I read years ago that had to do with having these crucial conversations in business or, or in leadership or, or in, and how to handle them, how to work through them. But I liked that title and I started thinking about this concept of these various conversations that we have throughout Scripture and then what we as Christians can, can glean from that conversation. Big moments. For example, the first one was Satan and Eve. It's a pretty crucial conversation. Moses and God. There at the burning bush, a crucial conversation. And of course, we went through some in the Old Testament and moved into the New Testament as well. You have Christ and Nicodemus. You have the apostles and the 3,000. And this morning, what I wanted to do is I was thinking through that class and, and the conversations that we had within, within our college class. And since this is a, a college Sunday, if you will, I wanted to look at one of those conversations and share it with you this morning Not only because I think it's valuable, but because I think anyone can gain from it, not just out of the college age. So with that being said, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. This conversation that I want for us to look at this morning is between David and Nathan. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in in verse 1, and and I'm going to... Do this similar to what I did in the class. We're going to start by, I'm going to read you the conversation in its entirety. And then I want us to look at this and break this down and see what we can really gain from it. So follow along with me as we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew together with him and with his children. And it ate his own food and drank his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man has done who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. 
Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up your advert. I will raise up adversity against you from your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, The child also who is born to you shall surely die. As this conversation here between David and Nathan opens up, obviously we see the power of of parables. There's a reason that Christ used them so often within the New Testament. He's describing events that can actually happen. They're they're fictional. But to relay his point to David, and, and there's no doubt that the parables serve this purpose. As a reader of this, even though we know the account, we know that David's, Nathan rather, is going to David to discuss what he's just done in killing Uriah the Hittite with his sin that he had with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. But yet as we read this even as an outsider, and you see this little story of the man with his lamb, and you had this rich man who had everything, and he went and took this, it angers even you and me. can't believe somebody would do this. And of course, David was angered here. The injustice that's taking place is palpable. And it's worth noting, first off, David's reaction. Here's David, the king of Israel, the executor of the law, the executive, if you will. He knows the law without question. What does the law state? The law says in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox. And four sheep, four sheep. Now David knows this, and he said such to Nathan here, he shall restore it fourfold. But what did he say first? This man shall surely die. This is such an egregious thing to do. This is so terrible that not only should he restore the sheep fourfold, but this man should face death. Nathan was so, had such a blind eye to his own, I mean, I'm sorry, David had such a blind eye to his own sins. But he was so quick to condemn another. And when we look at this conversation and we see what can we gain from this, we have to ask ourselves, how often do we sometimes do the same? We're so blind to our own sins and our own mistakes that, oh, we're so quick to condemn another. We often are looking out through the window, but very rarely do we really look in the mirror. We look around and and judge others and we hold them to a standard that we refuse to hold ourselves to. You see, that's what, I mean, that's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is a word that's thrown around a lot within the religious world, oftentimes misused. You hear people say at times, unfortunately, ah, you know, I don't like going to that church. It's just a bunch of, bunch of hypocrites. Well, what makes a hypocrite? It's not someone who who fails from time to time. That's, we're all guilty of that. It's not someone who, who sins from time to time. Unfortunately, we're all guilty of that. A hypocrite is someone who holds you to a standard in which they refuse to hold themselves to. That's what a hypocrite is. I'm going to hold you to, to God's standard that he lays out in the Scripture, but that standard really doesn't apply to me. 
or I'm going to make an excuse when things go against, or when I go against, says that. That's what a hypocrite is. That's what David's done here. This man, he shall surely die. And we're talking about a lamb. We're not even talking about a man's wife. He was looking through the window and not the mirror. He had allowed, he, we can't allow at the same time our Christianity to become so routine that we realize or that we begin to stop living it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27, we're told that we are the body of Christ and members individually. Think about that description. That description of us as Christians. The body of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, turn there if you will. See how Christians are described. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, notice it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Notice those two. The body of Christ, chosen, holy, royal, his own special people? Are we living with an understanding of what it means to proclaim Christ? Are we living towards the standard in which Christ is set out and hopefully of which we would hold others to, as Nathan does here, which we'll get to in a moment? We're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. Are you, as we just read, proclaiming the praises of him who called you out of darkness? We have to make sure that that we are looking in the mirror. We have to make sure that we are not turning a blind eye to our own sins in an effort to make sure that everyone else is living the way that they should be. As this conversation continues on into verse 7 there of chapter 12, we, we get to the critical part of this exchange. Those first four words, those big four words that Nathan says to David, you are the man. Or if you're reading the King James, thou art the man. The curtain is drawn back on the purpose of this discussion. You know, Nathan comes to David and they're going to talk and he's like, hey, I got to tell you this. Let me tell you this story. Okay, and we're going through it. And of course, David's anger is kindled, it says. But then those four words hit him. Those four words hit him. You are the man. And in this, from this point forward, are two characters here in this dialogue really coming to their own. First, you have Nathan, the leader. A courageous act by Nathan. He's talking to a king. The leader of a nation. And yet in this moment, it was Nathan who led. It was Nathan who was the leader. You know, I heard it said one time, in the athletic world, that leadership is lonely. I like that idea when you think about it, because it's true. You know, I coach athletics. I coach a high school baseball team, and I have that conversation with some of our guys at times. You know, really great teams, the best teams, they have leadership within the group. The coach, of course, is going to be a leader, hopefully. But the really, really good ones, they lead themselves. Coach doesn't have to do everything for him. He doesn't have to prod him and poke him along the way. But, and I try to explain this to, to my players from time to time, you have to understand, though, leadership, leadership is lonely. Because that means I've got to hold my buddy accountable. 
That means I've got to tell him when he's not doing it right that he's got to start doing it right. That means when he's goofing off or he's not holding things to the standard by which we've all agreed that we will go by, that I let him know. And the chances are he's probably not going to like it so much when I do. Now, again, in order to do that, in order to lead in that way, I've got to, I've got to adhere to that same standard myself. But because of that, leadership can be lonely. I'm going to let you know that this is how we are going to operate. This is how things are going to do. You've got Nathan going to stand before King, just the two of them. And although, yes, he's sent there by God, there's no doubt. And he knows that he's God's mouthpiece here. It could be a lonely situation. We can't let that deter us as Christians from leading when it's necessary. We can't let it know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to upset someone. I might hurt someone's feelings. Again, there's, there's a tactful way to do things, and there's a way to do things in love, and we're going to see that here. Because honestly, I think Nathan did that. But we have to understand that leadership is lonely. And at the same time, I don't think that we can categorize who's leaders and who's not. We do that sometimes. I'm not really a leader. It's just not, it's not really in my personality to lead. It's not who I am. The fact of the matter is, there's times when it needs to be. I was reading a book recently by General Stanley McChrystal, former general, four-star general, I believe. And it was just his memoir, and the book itself is irrelevant to this conversation, I suppose. But the title of this book, My Share of the Task. I've thought about that a lot over the past few weeks since I started listening to it. What that means. Of course, he pulls it from some ranger creed, military. What does that mean? What is my share of the task? Oftentimes we think about that, and right, I want to do my share. I want to do my fair share. So I'm going to, you know, see what it is. I'm going to write it out. I'm going to check these boxes. I've done it. I've done my share. But I started thinking about that, and as I've thought on this phrase for the past few weeks, what it means. I've thought about it as it applies to numerous things in my life. What is my share of the task, for example, as a, as a husband. You know, there's certain things that I do. There's certain things my wife does. You know, I cut the grass. She doesn't, so that's my share. You know, maybe she does the laundry. I don't. That's her share. We separate things like that. But the fact of the matter is, my share of the task as a husband is what my wife needs it to be today. And it may be different tomorrow. Tomorrow it might be more. Tomorrow it might be less. But that's me doing my share. It changes based off what she needs it to be. And the same for her. What's my share of the task as a father? Well, yeah, okay, we could say we do certain things. One of us is in charge of bath time, one of us in charge of bedtime, etc. But really, my share of the task as a father is what my children and my wife need it to be today. And that may be different tomorrow. It may be more or it may be less, depending on what they need of me. There's not set parameters of this. And the same thing applies to us as Christians. What is our share of the task as members of the body? What is our share? It's what the family of God needs it to be today. 
And that might be different tomorrow. It might be more or it might be less. But I don't think we can categorize ourselves into this box and say, I'm not really a leader. I'm not really a person who's good at this type of stuff. Because there may be a time in which we're called, based off the circumstance and the scenario, to be a Nathan to someone. And I can't say, that's not really my share. That's not really what I'm good at. Because Nathan wasn't necessarily even the leader that David was, perhaps. But in this moment, he confronted the king. He knew his recent deeds. He knew what David had just done. I mean, what a courageous act from Nathan. Man just had somebody killed. And now I'm going to call him out on it. That's what I'm about to do. I'm about to let him know that I know. Because David thought this thing was whole, all this was done in secret. I don't know how he's going to react. He might have, he could have me killed. But he shares the truth in love. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. Beginning in verse 24, we see this concept, what it means to share the truth in love, what it means to lead in this type of way. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14 continues. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Sin has to be confronted. It has to be confronted. We read in 1 Timothy 5.22 that we're not to partake in another man's sins or to share in other people's sins, depending on your translation there. What does that mean? To share in them. I've got in my margin of my Bible there that even means cheering on sin. What is cheering? What is that? So I say good job? No, that's not what I mean. It means the fact that we can't ignore it. Sometimes by ignoring it, we partake in it. Because we know what's happening. We're aware it's happening, but we turn a blind eye. We, we use the none for me, but some for thee doctrine. I wouldn't do that, but who am I to say that you should? Sadly, that's how we think sometimes. I had an example I can think back. There was a guy that I went to school with. We ran in the same circles of friends. I was a year older than him. Everyone used to always say we looked alike, a lot alike. They said, man, y'all are either twins, and if not that, you're surely brothers. And we weren't. I think it was the big nose. I think that's what we both had one of those. So we looked alike. But I remember I was in college, and I was home for the summer. And he shot me a message one day. And he let me know that he was planning on going out that weekend to a, a bar or a club. I don't know what it was. This was a long time ago. And I was 21. And he was not. He was 20. He's a year younger than me. But, you know, we look an awful lot alike. Really a lot alike. And he asked me, he said, hey, would it be okay if I borrowed your ID for the weekend? I'll get back to you, you know, on Monday, whatever. Now, I mean, I wasn't going to the bar. I wasn't going. I don't know what I was doing that weekend. Let's just say that I was going to sit at home. I wasn't participating in anything bad, in anything sinful. I was being good, for lack of a better way of putting it. But if I had decided to, and I didn't, 
If I had decided to give him my ID so that he could go do those things, I'm partaking in another man's sins. That's what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, I can, I can really justify that. I'm not sinning. I'm not doing it. That's up to him. That's on him. He's making those choices. I got to let him make his own choices. But I cannot partake in another man's sins. Because of that concept, we get Nathan holding David accountable here. The second player in this conversation is, of course, David. A man with immense worldly power that we see fall to his knees. He's confronted by his sins, and he didn't push back. He didn't get defensive. And I know you may say, well, Ben, it's easy for him not to get defensive. You know, Nathan not only, not only told him, you are the man, but then he laid out everything that God knew and that God was going to do. Right, but still, it's easy. It's human nature sometimes. And you and I both know that we're a part of it, where we want to say, but, but, but. You don't understand. You weren't there. There was the woman, Bathsheba. She's beautiful. What do you want me to do? That's how I'm, that's how I'm hardwired to be. I'm a man. What am I supposed to do? And we start to justify and we start to find. And even sometimes we start to tell, speak as if God doesn't know. God doesn't understand what that was like. As if he didn't see the entire exchange take place. But David didn't do that. He looked in the mirror now. And what did he see? He saw a fallen man. And because of his reaction, notice verse 13. Nathan says, David, the Lord's forgiven you of your sins. Now, as far as we know, Nathan and God had not discussed this. As far as we know, God didn't tell Nathan, hey, if he, you know, was really repentative after you're done, then let him know that I've forgiven him for his sins. That conversation, as far as we're given, didn't happen. But the fact of the matter is, Nathan knew God. And Nathan knew that he's always willing to forgive a penitent heart. Always. And as we look at this conversation and see not only can what can we gain from, from what Nathan and David did, but do we forgive in this way? It's worth asking that question. Are we hopeful and prayerful that someone who has sinned, even against us, will repent? We want them to. Someone who has wronged me or wronged you, do we say to ourselves, if, if they'll just, I just want them to repent so badly. So that I can forgive them, because I want to forgive them. Or are we hoping, deep down, we're holding that grudge and we're saying, they deserve it. I, they deserve whatever they're getting. It's not the way God was. It's not the way Christ was when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was hopeful that they would come to repentance. So that forgiveness could be handed out. And surely they were wronged in much greater ways than you and I are. Do we have that desire to forgive immediately like God does with David here? And Nathan knows that God does because Nathan knows the nature of God. Notice too though verse 14 that follows after. David, you're forgiven. But his sin provided an opportunity for the enemies of God to speak against him. When we fail to uphold God's standard, we invite the same. 
when we fail to uphold the things and, and the requirements that God has laid out, then we also invite the enemies of God to speak against him, to blaspheme him. Oh, that's how Christians are? Oh, okay, well. I could do that. If we proclaim to be a member of this body, and yet we go out and we live a worldly life, what we've told everyone that knows us is that you can have both. You can come do this, and you can be a member of the Lord's church, but you know what? You can also live how you like. And you can do the quote-unquote the fun stuff. You can do all those things. And it's okay, because clearly they do it. And someone who doesn't know any better assumes it's fine. He provided an opportunity for the enemies of God to speak evil against him. We've got to make sure that we don't do the same. We've got to make sure that, again, we live what we proclaim, that we are set apart, that we are chosen, holy, royal, as we read in 1 Peter 2.9. And yet at the same time in verse 14, even with forgiveness, what do we see? There's still consequences. We can't lose sight of that. Is David forgiven? He certainly is. But even a king couldn't hide from his mistakes. And there's still consequences God has got to face because of those mistakes. That doesn't mean God forgave you, so guess what? Everything's fine, and now you're going to live a happy life. No, David, there's consequences for the mistakes that you make. And we've got to understand that. God forgave him. We're forgiven when we are penitent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. But that doesn't mean what we've done is without consequence. And those consequences are no one's fault but our own. They're certainly not God's fault. They're ours. Because we are the ones that have sinned. David was penitent. He fell to his knees. He was forgiven. But he faced the consequences of his actions. In closing this morning, I'm reminded of a quote by David McCullough. He's an author and historian. <clears throat> and he's delivered numerous speeches over the years. And there's part of this one. And if you'll allow me, it's a touch lengthier, but I just want to read it to you because I find it fascinating. He says, Nor is there any such thing, nor is there any such creature as a self made man or woman. We love that expression, we Americans. But everyone who's ever lived has been affected, changed, shaped, helped, hindered by other people. We all know in our own lives who those people are who have opened a window, given us an idea, given us encouragement, given us a sense of direction, self-approval, self-worth, who have straightened us out when we are on the wrong path. Most often they have been parents. Almost as often they have been teachers. Stop and think about those teachers who have changed your life, maybe with one sentence, maybe with one lecture, Maybe by just taking an interest in your struggle. <laughs> Family, teachers, friends, rivals, competitors, they've all shaped us. And so too have people we've never met, never known, because they lived long before us. They've shaped us too. The people who compose the symphonies that move us, the painters, the poets, those who have written the great literature in our language. We walk around every day, every one of us, quoting Shakespeare, Savant, Pope. We don't know it, but we are all the time. We think this is our way of speaking. It isn't our way of speaking. It's what we've been given. The laws we live by, the freedoms we enjoy, the institutions that we take for granted, as we should never take for granted, are all the work of other people who went before us. And to be indifferent to that isn't just to be ignorant, it's to be rude. And ingratitude is a shabby failing. How can we not want to know about the people who have made it possible for us to live as we live, to have the freedoms we have, to be citizens 
of this greatest of countries in all time. It's not just a birthright. It's something that others struggled for, strive for, often suffered for, often were defeated for and died for, for us, the next generation. We study these crucial conversations because they shall help shape us as Christians, who we strive to be. They teach us about failure, about repentance, about forgiveness, grace, hope. They show us people who are fallen, great men, great men, like David, and women that have fallen, that are, that are imperfect. And although our goal should be to strive every day to walk into the perfect footsteps that Christ left behind for us, that's the goal. That's the bar we strive for. We know that we are, unfortunately, a sinful people, which is why that we have his perfect example, which is why that we have his perfect sacrifice, because we are sinful people. And oftentimes when we can study these things, we study these conversations and we see a great man of God who, but he sinned and he sinned in a bad way. And yet he's called out by it, by another man of God, a leader in this instance. And he's held accountable for that. And it shows us not only how we must hold ourselves and others accountable, but how we must react when we are held accountable by others. Not to be defensive, not to push back, not to say, you don't get it. But to fall on our knees. And there's times, no doubt, when you've perhaps felt in over your head with some things that you've done, with some mistakes that you've made. I've messed up, and I've messed up big. And I'm in over my head. And oftentimes it's when we're in over our head that we find out how tall we are. David sinned. He made a mistake. But then he stood tall. He prayed fervently for God's forgiveness. As Caleb read there at the beginning in Psalms 51, we can see that prayer. He prayed fervently for God's forgiveness. He stood tall again. Are we willing to do the same? There may be some here this morning, perhaps, that are members of the body of Christ. They are chosen. They are holy. They are royal. They have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yet they've made a mistake. Perhaps that's you. You've made a mistake. Maybe you're in over your head a little bit. Maybe one mistake has spiraled into two, has spiraled into three, whatever it may be. And yet, we have a merciful and forgiving God who is simply waiting for repentance. And not only that, but we have the family of God here that meets in this congregation that at the same time wants to reach out a hand, wants to pitch you, pick you back up and allow you to stand tall again. Or maybe there may be some here this morning that, have, that are not a part of the, God's family. And I tell you, there's no greater comforting feeling than to be in the arms of the Lord, to know that even when I make a mistake, and that's not the goal, that's not an out, that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I'm going to mess up sometime, so it's okay. But I can know that even when I make a mistake, I do have a loving and merciful God. He's just. But he's loving and merciful, and he 
welcomes my repentance. True, true repentance. And he's just waiting for it so that I can be forgiven. You don't have that outside of the body of Christ. No, no one does. No one outside of the body of Christ has that blessing. In order to receive it, you must be in Christ. How does one become in Christ? Well, we could look at numerous verses in the New Testament that tells us, but when you look at the New Testament as a whole, there are certain actions that continually stand out. And they are the fact that you have to hear God's Word. You have to study it. You have to understand it. You have to believe. You have to have a faith. But of course, this is not just a mere belief in the existence of God or in the infallibility of His Word. It comes with action. And those actions are evident throughout conversions in the New Testament and the fact that you have to repent of your past sins. I can't be a new creature if I'm still living as the old one was. I confess that Christ is the Son of God. He gave that perfect sacrifice for me. That His are the footsteps that I strive to walk in. And then, of course, I'm baptized into Christ. As we read in Romans 6, to raise up out of the great water he gave of baptism and to walk in newness of life, to be the new creature. It doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. But it does mean that I strive for perfection. I strive for that. That's the goal. That's the bar. And when I make a mistake, I pray fervently for God's forgiveness, knowing that he is willing and just and faithful to forgive me. I can only have those things in Christ. That's the only place I get them. And if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, I encourage you to make the decision to do so today. You can't stand tall when you're in over your head without Christ and without the family that he has created to help you stand back up again. If anyone has any need, won't you come? It's together we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.